If you're looking for a hunting and fishing podcast that celebrates wild food ingredients and how to acquire them, check out the Food Afield podcast. We take you into the field with us while we adventure for food in the backcountry. The focus is on traditional bow hunting and fly fishing, but we explore all of the ways to fill your freezer. You can listen to the Food Afield podcast on Spotify and Apple or wherever you find your podcasts. listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast. So just after you joined the Fur Institute, uh, I read, you did an interview uh, and I read an article uh, that was sort of like the question and answer. Uh, and the one of the parts that I found thoroughly fascinating, which I want to get you to kind of talk about here so we can get to know you a bit more, is you had this really cool family history and and background that you talked about in eastern canada and i was blown away about how far back you were talking about when your when your family first started immigrating here so so fill us in a little bit on your family history and the clans and all that good stuff yeah sure so i mean i uh, i grew up in in cape breton uh you know canada's 11th province as we like to see ourselves uh you know we're the we're, we're the claw of the lobster claw you look at, at nova scotia it looks like an arm like a lobster's arm and we're, we're the claw we're the island um how and... un-canadian of me to not know that <laughs> you know con- consistently voted second or third best island in the world rarely first but Usually the Greeks beat us on on first, but uh, a lot a lot of history going back there, and, and a lot of history that my family was was in families were, were in and around. Um, my last name, you know, in in English I, I'd say Chasson, in French be Chasson is an Acadian last name, so we go all the way back to 1604. We were one of the first 20 families um, that uh, that came over uh, in in the early. Uh, early Acadian settlements and then was part of, of La Grande Rangement, part of the deportation of the Acadians um, by the English. At that point, what is now Cape Breton was then Ile Royale, was still a French colony, so uh, my family made its way there and came over the mountains into the the Marguerite River Valley, uh, and uh, there was uh, a, a seasonal settlement of Mi'kmaq that lived at the forks of the river. Um, so the the Acadian families that came into the River Valley lived with uh, lived with uh, the Mi'kmaq and learned to salmon fish and caribou hunt and uh, you know live off the land and survive. Um, so that uh, that that's part of the story. Um, you know, on on the other side of my family uh, were Highland Scots. Part of the clearances came to to Nova Scotia, came to Cape Breton. Um, you know, one of the last remaining bastions of, of Scottish Gaelic speakers uh, in the world. Um, hmm. You know, we still send folks from Cape Breton back to Scotland to teach them about Scottish culture, which is kind of interesting <laughs> and unique. So there's there's a whole lot of, of, of ancient culture uh, bound up in, uh, in the person that I am and, and the community that I grew up in and the communities around it. Wow. Very cool. Now, I, is is this, well, I'm, 
It, it must be true because you said it in the article. I wrote it down here. Uh, the first wave of your ancestors landed here in the 1600s. Yep. Yeah. So they were they were From part of the French-speaking uh, Switzerland. Yeah. So my family actually actually traces its way back as far as we know. Anyway, um, the place where people with my last name trace their way back to is is like the French cantons of Switzerland. So we don't. I I don't have the exact genealogy and the exact history, but uh, in you know of like this is my great 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 grandfather. But just in in the broad strokes, people with with my last name come from that uh, that chunk of Switzerland. Um, and somehow, some way, made their way through into certain parts of France, and thought it was a great idea to come across the ocean, and ended up in in Ekedzi, in Acadia, and um, you know, fast forward a couple hundred years, and now we're here. <laughs> wow! And that just that blows me away about everything in Eastern Canada is is the age, the antiquity of at least you know the European history of that part of Canada compared to where we are in the West. I remember being in Montreal, like some of the, the old buildings there. And there was a, like the oldest building, I think in Montreal is a little church or something like that. And it was, <clears throat> I, uh, I'll get, you know, guess wrong, you know, whatever, but it was 15, late 1500s or some, something like that. And, and, you know, over here, you know, in the West, you know, it's kind of like, hey, when was that building built? And it was like, oh, yeah, that was like in the 60s, <laughs> <laughs> the 1960s. Yeah, wow, it's sure old. A, there, there's a lot of that, like, well, when was this town formed? And it's like, well, we don't really know. <laughs> so, some point, somewhere, you know, depends on when you want to start calling something a town. Um, I mean, calling Gosh. where I grew up is, is uh, calling it a town is fairly generous. You know, it's a couple hundred people. Um you know, uh, along the edges of a road uh, without, you know, there's no bank or anything in down. You know, we don't have a downtown. We have. Uh, <laughs> that's we have the best kind of town. Right? That's, that's, that's the, for us, we're small, we're small town folk too. So the best town is one that doesn't have a downtown. Yeah, exactly. Or, or a streetlight. Yeah. You know, I, when I went away First. to university and moved to Ottawa, like that was the big city, you know, Ottawa's oh my gosh. It's a city, but it's not, uh, you know, not exactly uh, Beijing, right? It's uh, it's a small town with big city things in it. Uh, but for me, I was like blown away. I was like, "Wow, this is this is the big city. All this concrete and glass." <laughs> yeah, I was I was the same way when I went to Vancouver. Yeah, big big city. It's like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Get me out of here. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Anytime I'm in Toronto. It, yeah, well, Toronto, Toronto, I think, is the only city in Canada I would say we could call a city. Yeah. It's it's nuts. I traveled a lot in the United States for work, and it's like what we call cities. I remember just uh, Colorado Springs, which is just outside of Denver, is like two and a half million people. Oh, wow. And, and it's little compared to Denver. And like Calgary is... 2 million people just a few, few years ago. And we're like, Oh, Calgary's a big city. And down, down in Colorado, it's like, Oh, Colorado Springs. That's that little place is South of Denver. Whatever. It's like, <laughs> Holy. And then you get into like LA and it's just like, man, I'm 
this is not Kansas anymore, Toto, and yeah. take me and put me in L.A. or Dallas-Fort Worth, and you're you're driving a rental car, and the next thing you know, you're on off-ramps, and you're up in the air, and there's highways going underneath of you, and you're way up three stories in the air looking for your, and your GPS goes, recalculating route, take the first U-turn. I'm like, I'm three stories in the air. Yeah, the, the GPS is saying, jump off of this level down to the other yeah, level. Yeah, I'll, I'll Duke's a hazard this and yeah. keep, the, keep the GPS happy. <laughs> uh, us small town folk must, must make the big city people laugh. So, Hey everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host. And it's Curtis Hall, the co-host. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community-minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. I was doing a little digging on their website here, and I have some homework for the listeners. I just noticed that the Alpine Toyota website has a link to a YouTube page, and they have a YouTube channel. So go check it out. There's not much on it, but... They have a YouTube page. Cool. Some Alpine Toyota content for you to consume about. It's probably got stuff like uh, vehicle reviews and maybe some cool off-road. Maybe they've got a promo video with all the custom wrap jobs that we've come up with over the last. That we've been talking about. Yeah. Yep. So so anyways, folks should yep. go check it out. Their website's pretty slick too, actually. it's uh, I was cruising through theirs and a couple other the uh toyota websites from around the country and theirs definitely has like a the slickest sort of feel to it it's a pretty nice website so go check it out but yeah oh, right on. as always we're super grateful that the folks down at alpine toyota continue to support us and what we do here at the hunter conservationist bringing you great conversations with great people and today will be another one Absolutely. Yeah, thanks Alpine for for your support. Doug, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks what, for having me. You 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 have to get this on the record. What did you say before we started recording? You're a I'm a long time listener. Oh, I'm I'm, I'm a long time listener, <laughs> first time caller. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Ah, uh, now that's lost all of its credibility because I had to script it out. We'll get Curtis to like mute that <laughs> when, when I said that. They're like, they're prompting their guests to what to say. That's a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, so so give, us, give us the pronunciations again of your last name because you said you had two, two ways of going with it. Yeah, so, so I, you know, the, the way I was raised pronouncing my last name is Chesson. You know, like the chess, game chess. like yeah, oh, okay. chess that's a good way to remember. Switch. That's, uh, but you know, in, in French, it'd be chesson. So, chesson. living in okay. Ottawa for thirteen years, it kind of depended who I was meeting, what pronunciation I would use. <laughs> okay, so so Doug Sheshwan, not Sheshwan, like the Sheshwan. not not she, not uh, Sheshwan chicken, no Sheshwan chicken, <laughs> no, it's that's a sauce. <laughs> Uh, so, Doug, you're the executive director of the Fur Institute of Canada, that and am. that is a new post for you as of this April, was yeah, it? Yeah, as, uh, as of April this year. So yeah, be congratulations. Thank you. 
So time time flies when you're having fun. It's hard to believe it's been seven months already. Yeah. I mean, it's a big country. A lot of, lot of traveling. Yeah, yeah, a lot of, cool. lot of travel here in Canada and, and internationally representing FIC around the world. So it's been, okay. Uh, no, that makes that makes that makes sense. I, I get that as well. So very cool. So tell us a little bit about like we'll, we'll kick off. Tell us about the Fur Institute of Canada. Uh, uh, what is it? How did it come about? What's its role mandate? Uh, give give people the Coles notes on the Fur Institute of Canada. Sure. So uh, Fur Institute of Canada was founded in uh, 1983 uh, at uh, at the request of Canada's wildlife ministers. Uh, we took over uh, the role of the Federal Provincial Committee on Humane Trapping. So uh, instead of government running its own sort certif- of trap certification program. Um, and trap testing program, they decided to create the FIC. Um, so we, uh, so we're we're made up of governments and uh, trappers organizations, um, fur auctions, other parts of the fur industry. Uh, we're also engaged in the sealing industry. So we have sealing organizations, sealing processors, uh, uh, sealing product producers uh, that are a part of FIC as well, as well as indigenous organizations. So uh, at our core, what we do is we run Canada's trap uh, testing and certification program uh, in uh, in accordance with Canada's obligations under the agreement on international humane trapping standards. Uh, but over the years, our mandate has has evolved and expanded. So, you know, beyond purely the, the trap testing side, we also uh, advocate for the fur industry. We advocate for conservation of fur bearers, uh, and uh, do what we can to to educate uh, Canadians and uh, and folks around the world about uh, all the great things going on in Canada when it comes to uh, to fur. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it you're you're definitely h- how I see it is you know like a proponent and advocate uh, on 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 top of the the, the testing. Uh, aspect like you said so it's uh yeah it's a big that's a big responsibility in a country that was kind of like you know a Canada anyways not you know again you know the the European side of Canada's history was you know people were first coming here for the fur trade and and the cod stocks you know it's it's a long long history big job a lot of people coast to coast depend on the trapping and sealing industry i think uh that's a really important one that we're dedicated to educating more people in western canada about about seals and the seal industry and seal meat and seal fur being part of this bigger envelope of the fur industry of canada it's just not uh it's just not on the radar screen of Western Canada, especially in British Columbia, because there is no sealing industry on the West Coast and there is no, DFO does not allow uh, or very much uh, harvest for indigenous people. You know, that's, that's there's people pushing back against that, but uh, yeah, I, I like people to know, you know, about that and, and the Fur Institute's role uh, equally covers covers Canada's sealing industry so uh, good good place to go for resources 
Another thing I noticed, I was cruising through some stuff just before the show. It looks like you're, you, you sort of also have a, a, like a little bit of a role of matching like the, <clears throat> the scientific testing of the traps and the certification with trapping practices and best practices. And like, there's some really big documents and stuff in there that FIC has endorsed as well. And is that an important part? Like you can have a certified trap, but there's like, you still got to go out and like use it properly for the right animals in order for it to. Yeah, well that's, that's exactly it. So yeah. So if folks, uh, if folks are on our website at fur.ca and go and look at that best, our, our best trapping practice documents, um, you know, no matter how good the trap is, if you're not using it correctly, right. You know, it's, uh, I would like to think I'm a good driver, but if you put me in a Formula One car, I'm not going to uh, be uh, keeping up with uh, with Lewis Hamilton, right? I don't know how to run a Formula One car. Uh, Those guys wreck cars all the time. I watch a little <laughs> bit of that stuff. I'm I, like, I, I, I can do get that. that far, though. I wouldn't. Even, I mean, I wouldn't. Fit oh, it okay. To start with that's that's the, uh, the the easy solution there. I'm six foot five and 280 pounds. Those those cars aren't built for me. But you know that that's the thing is that these these traps are tools, um, mm. and certainly uh, certainly there's folks out there that know exactly how to use them, and there's folks that. Uh, that maybe could benefit from having a document that they can take a look at and say this is the best way to to employ this kind of trap uh, for animal XYZ. So uh, so we put up that uh, that advice on our website and we work uh, you know very closely with uh, with trappers associations and with uh, provincial and territorial trapping authorities to ensure that uh, that this stuff is shared through in. Uh, you know, trapping, uh, trapper education courses and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So tell us about, about the agreement that Canada, the international agreement on humane trapping standards. When, when did that come about? Why yeah. So did Canada ratify that agreement. Yeah. So, so the agreement on international humane trapping standards, the, uh, the eights agreement was signed in 1997. Uh, and it was signed between Canada, the Russian Federation, and the European Union. Uh, there also is a parallel agreement uh, between the Americans and the European Union. Uh, that's called the, the Agreed Minute um, on Humane Trapping Standards. Uh, that just because of, of particularities in the American regulatory system, they weren't part of the big agreement they have their own agreement with the european union and you know the agreement came about because there were concerns in um concerns in the european union around uh humaneness of traps so uh to ensure that uh we had continued access to the european market for our furs uh we signed this agreement we negotiated this agreement and signed it with uh with the europeans uh, in 97, ratified it in, uh, in 99. Uh, and then there was a, uh, a phase in period of eight years, uh, from 99 to 2007, where it transitioned into being in effect. Uh, and essentially the eights just, uh, at its core says that, uh, traps used for a particular list of species, um, all furs sold from these species from, uh, from wild, uh, wild caught fur, um, 
will be caught using traps that go through a uh, through a, a, a testing and certification program to show that they are humane. And there's there's particular um, particular benchmarks that are set in the agreement for different kinds of animals. Of the animals must be killed in that's uh, 45 seconds for weasel, and then there's 60 seconds, and then 120 seconds, depending on on which animals. Um, are uh, are caught in the trap uh, so we can say that you know if you're using an FIC certified trap in the proper way we can reasonably uh, reasonably say based on the testing we've done that those animals um, you know will be dispatched in a humane manner within that mm-hmm. time frame mm-hmm. so under that agreement uh, tell me if I understand this right the agreement has those standards for like the humane dispatching of trapped animals then it's up to the individual countries that have signed on they're obligated to develop their own testing methods and certification in order to license or certify traps in the country that meet those criteria is that how it works? So we we have uh, actually a, an ISO standard and international standards organization standard for testing of right, traps. Right, right. Um, that uh, that sets out. You know, this is the standard that is referred to in the agreement. Um, so the the, oh, the gotcha. ISO standard isn't on performance, but it's on how testing is done. Um, and then there's the the set out targets for for humane dispatch for the species in the agreement. So the the agreement and the ISO standard um, really fit together. They're they're two pieces of uh, of the same discussion. Okay. Okay. No, I, I I understand that better. So so every country is using the ISO standards for its trap testing. Yeah, they they're supposed to be anyway. Uh, so between yep. and and there's also other other countries out there that uh, that may not necessarily be parties to to the AIDS agreement that also use the ISO standard for their own national trapping standards as well. Okay. Now th- this is this is a like a bit of a rabbit hole, but e- there's other things out there like um seafood certification lumber certification you know where you got your your sustainable forest products um label then that goes into the market of being you know fsc certified or blue ocean certified or you know whatever it happens to be the consumer sees that it do do the the countries that are part of the international agreement have that when the furs go onto the market for auction are they differentiated or are the buyers coming in there and not really aware or is that very important that they're buying from Canada or they're buying from so whoever? as uh, you know before I came to, to FIC I worked in in the fisheries world so I'm, I'm awful familiar with you know the the, the good old blue check the mark la- from labels MS, from yeah MS. okay yeah uh, you know this is is more so what we do at FIC is more so a, a regulatory compliance uh, type of of things so for us it's you know if these animals are not you know if we're sending furs to europe if uh if those furs weren't caught in certified traps the auction house isn't going to accept them to then sell them on to uh to europe um there is a a fur certification a more 
MSC, FSC style certification out there. It's called Furmark. Uh, it's run by the International Fur Federation. Um, so it it shows a you know a, a traceability and uh, and sustainability um, certification for uh, for furs. Hmm. I did not. I did not know that. That's that's interesting. That's something I'd really like to dig into, and you know, and you know uh, very well, like that. You know, the viability of the fur industry it totally hinges on, you know, one public acceptance and and demand, but it also hinges on, you know, sustainable fur bearer populations, which depend on on habitat. And so if your agencies are not managing the habitat properly, like for example, in central British Columbia, we have an issue where fishers can no longer be trapped in the central interior of British Columbia because of decades of extensive clear-cut logging, um, wiped out fisher habitat, their populations have declined, they've been declared uh, endangered, and right. trappers have had to figure out how to trap Martin and not catch a fisher because they're not allowed it anymore. And in a, a sustainable fur labeling system, you know, I would, I would suspect that it would be pretty cool to have those elements, like how does that jurisdiction manage its habitat? How many of its fur bearers are, you know, listed as endangered? Are they doing a good job of managing them? And, and that's all part of the sustainability along with, you know, the humane trapping part of it. And, um, well, we're another rabbit hole, but. That's got yeah, I thinking. mean, and and that's kind of how how FIC over the years ended up, um, you know, having its mandate expand into talking about conservation of fur bearers. Um, gotcha. Because it's all it's all well and good to say well, you know these traps are good and these traps are bad, uh, or not. We don't even say these traps are bad. We just say these are these are the traps that are good. Um, certified. Yeah, certified. Um, is you know that's all well and good, but if there's no industry that actually continues to exist uh, to to have a need for those traps. Um, you know, if there's if there's nothing left to trap, there's no need to continue certifying new traps. Um, yeah. And I mean, we we also certify. We don't only certify traps for use uh, for use for you know the commercial fur trade. You know, we also certify traps that may be used for scientific research or for human animal conflict, that kind of stuff. You know, our we also certify live traps uh, for for certain species as well. So that's the uh, as much as it's easy to only talk about the the commercial fur trade piece. We also are you know an essential part of um, you know wildlife research for particular species oh. because we're we're saying these are the certified live traps that aren't going to end up uh, you know hurting the animal to a to a point that your your research would be no good because you're your animals are getting awful beat up in traps. Yeah, that's that's fascinating that, you know, and I think that's a really great um, point to get out to listeners here is like when we're talking about humane trapping standards, there's multiple fronts here. So, you know, you do have the commercial trapping first sector. You've got nuisance animal uh, control in urban areas, the, the, the coyotes and burlington ontario and and stanley park and the the um the scientists that we have on the show i'm just thinking back curtis to some of the ones we've had on and the things they trap snowshoe hares 
squirrels. Yeah. Grizzly bears, claim traps, <laughs> grizzly bears. Um, so, so yeah, that, that is, you know, and we're all behind scientific research for conservation and stuff, but they're getting these animals and putting collars on and learning all this stuff about their behavior and habitat needs because they're being trapped mostly. Uh, even if they are darted like a grizzly bear is caught with a, with a foot snare and then darted, um, to, to, to sedate it. So, uh, that is very, very interesting that, that you're part of that as well. Does that expand into the traps that would be available like on a commercial store shelf, like the rat traps, the the live skunk traps, raccoon traps, cage traps, yeah, so, those sorts so, of things. Um, not not so much rat traps, or at least not as far as I'm aware. I don't think we can improve on those, from trap. what I've heard. <laughs> as as they say, though, <laughs> though every once in a while you see that uh, that old patent uh, from the U.S. of the the rat trap that was just a handgun, right? You know. The... <laughs> Um, but no, the, uh, but certainly for, for raccoon traps and skunk traps, uh, you know, the cage traps, uh, foot encapsulating traps, uh, for raccoons, um, those are, are all, uh, or not all, but many of those would be, be certified. There, there is a, a live trap hmm. list on, uh, on the FIC certified trap list. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Yeah, th- as I mean, well that's... as like hold traps. So for for uh, you know for for coyote and wolf, um, you know there's there's also the the like hold traps on there as well. Yep. Yep. No, that's um yeah, that's super interesting to to learn about that. I mean, a big part of trapping and conservation coming together, and trappers and and researchers coming together is is catching animals to move them to areas for for introduction. Last year, when was it last winter, Curtis? We did the episode with Bill Abercrombie, president of the Alberta Trappers Association. I think it was last winter. Yeah, late I last winter. I think that might have even been earlier because I think we were still doing everything on Zoom, and you and I were. Hmm. Maybe COVID kind of times. Yeah. But but he talked about like the Alberta trappers being involved in catching fishers and they were moving them to the cascades in uh it was idaho or washington and so you know again there's a another uh not a scientific but a but a conservation application of trapping and um yeah you if you're moving animals to reintroduce a population you want to make sure that they're humanely caught and not injuring each other or or um you know dying from the trapping so yeah absolutely is uh you know, we make sure that if you have a trap that you want to make sure it kills something, we make sure it kills them. If you want a trap that you want to make sure it doesn't kill something, we do our best to make sure that it doesn't kill them, right? Oh, that's a good way. We uh, we aim to please customer <laughs> service. <laughs> we listen to the customer's needs. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I should say we we don't uh, we don't try and make them that way, but we can tell you if they are. You know, we're gotcha. We, we are gotcha. the certifying body. So. So, so let's let's dive a little bit into to that part of it. The the trap testing, um, the the relationship with the facility is at Inotech in yes. Alberta in Vegreville, and m- maybe walk us through a little bit about like how does a trap get certified and be allowed out there for commercial trappers in the fur sector to trap a marten with, like sure. like for for whatever. 
Yeah, so so essentially a trap manufacturer will come to us and say, I have this new trap, we want to see if it uh, can be certified for species XYZ. And uh, we then take that and, and bring it to the facility at, uh, at Inotech uh, in Vagerville. Uh, we take a, you know, a number of mechanical measurements of the, of the trap, uh, you know, particularly if we're thinking like a, a like a conibear style trap here. Um, you know, we're taking things like clamping force, um, you know, the, the speeds at which the trap is closing, um, you know, those kinds of things all kinds of measurements. We have a, a fairly sophisticated computer simulation uh, model and computer simulation system at this point. So uh, for particularly for our eight spe listed species, um, you know, we very rarely now are actually taking animals and putting them into traps. Um, most of this work can be done uh, with the, the you know, reams of data that we have collected over the decades uh, on uh, on these species, on the required amount of uh, you know of force and where and how and how quickly, um, you know, we can we can do some calculations there and you know instead of basing it off of ten or fifteen animals in the compound at at Vagerville, uh, you know, we can run that simulation ten thousand times. And say, okay, well, out of ten thousand, um, this is how many passed and how many failed. So, so is when you're saying computer simulation, like, are we talking about like, like a computer generated sort of model of the trap, and your CGI Martin comes along, and the computer person runs him into the trap and sets it off, and all types of data are gathered off of where the trap strikes and where that would be on the body and all yeah, those sorts of things like is it literally I, it's, is that uh, it's it's not quite as as cool looking as that there's a whole lot more spreadsheets oh, and a lot less uh, cgi oh, okay okay i'm i'm totally but, uh... thinking like pixar animation <laughs> here so um because uh, that but, that i could do the spreadsheet stuff and the numbers i'd be like oh, i don't know what is this yeah what is but, this uh, but for all intents and purposes we are running 10,000, uh, you know, uh, Martins made of ones and zeros, uh, into that trap and showing, okay, well, if it hits, uh, hits at this point in the spine, it does this. If it hits at this point in the spine, it, you know, this point in the spine, it passes this point in the spine, it fails. Um, you know, there's, and then we can then go back to the manufacturer and, you know, if there is something glaring in the data that says, well, okay, here's where you have your issue. Uh, with the, you know, if a trap were to fail, there will be occasions where we can say, well, okay, well, this is why it failed. Um, you know, there's, uh, you know, it's it really is is largely a, a computer simulation exercise at this point, uh, okay. which makes it, you know, lower cost for everyone. Um, you know, we're uh, we're ensuring that uh, the data is still good. You know, if we get reports back from a regulatory body saying, hey, you know, this trap was certified, but we're seeing a lot of issues with it. You know, we can go back and rerun it and say, okay, well, is this, you know, is this a problem with best trapping practices? Is this a problem with, uh, with the trap itself that didn't show up in our data? Let's go run it 50,000 times instead of 10,000 times. 
you know that that replicability that we get out of the computer simulation is is really important and really useful to everybody involved because you know for especially for a new trap coming onto the market you're not going to see 50,000 of them in the field in year 1 right you know we can we can go uh, above and beyond and then as required we can we can then go into the field uh, and uh, and do some some testing back of okay well in real life here's what happens is there a difference between what happens in real life and what happens in the computer and you know thankfully I can say that uh, has very rarely if ever been the case but uh, we uh, we do certainly, you know, value the relationships we have with trappers associations and the the provincial and territorial governments because they can feed that information back to us, if and when that would be required. Yeah, no, very very interesting. Yeah, just model calibration from from real world results, like any any scientist would would do with it, whether it's a weather prediction or climate prediction model, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah, that's. I mean, obviously. Back in the day, um, animals and pens were being used, like you said, but, you know, like a limit, limited number of them, that just obviously not an overly, you know, acceptable thing anywhere in society nowadays, you know, whether it's the medical field, cosmetics, all that kind of stuff of using, you know, live, live animals for, for testing. And uh, this, this would be kind of the same, the same case. But I, but I also see what you're saying is that there's a scientific rigor to going to the model in the fact that you're running thousands of scenarios looking for where this trap design for a particular target animal is not going to quite quite kill it quick enough and and um you know being able to to point that out where you might not get that with with half a dozen actual live animals that you've trapped yeah exactly like i say i mean in, in the in the earliest days of of the fic you know it really was you know cameras uh set up on traps uh in a compound at vagerville and you know there were x number of coyotes released into the compound and you know they'd watch the video back and see what how that animal reacted in that trap and you know have the stopwatch out and say okay well there it goes and then you know, wait for that animal to no longer be with us and stop the mm -hmm, stopwatch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, like you say, they're not exactly, uh, not not always the most uh, acceptable, uh, socially acceptable way to to do things. When we can do something that's uh, that gives us so much more data um, through the computer simulation model. Yeah. Maybe tell us a little, just uh, listeners, a little, little bit about like the modern traps. So we're talking about right now, sort of about the killing traps, kind of the design, how they work, um, where and what they're doing to the animal when they strike on them. I know you hear the thing about the double suitcase, um, you know, and, and catching the animal in two places. Maybe, yeah. So maybe so fill folks a little bit. In, in terms of, uh, of killing traps uh, that are out there today, I mean, depending on, on what species we're, we're talking about, um, you know, for, uh, for canids, for wolves and coyotes, and for, for your, your felines, for lynx and bobcat, I mean, those are primarily snares. Um, so, uh, you know, pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, you know, you, 
a, a loop snare. Uh, there's there's been some pretty significant uh, developments in snare design and in torsion springs and and things that are are designed to make uh, make killing neck snares more effective. Uh, and and we've certainly been doing a lot of work in in that direction in recent years on on wolf and coyote. Um, for for smaller bodied animals, uh, for you know you're getting into your you know fishers and martins and uh, uh, things of that nature. You know those are um, you know really conibear style traps for the most part. There are some uh, some um, certified traps that are more the the planer models, the the kind of guillotine style um, single contacts. Uh, so there's uh there's those two options as as well those would be you know two of the the main uh, main ways of things are, are going today um and then moving into things like beaver and muskrat there's conor bears but there's uh you know whether those are set for um there's also um you know leg hole drowning sets for uh for those species as well um so uh you know what we're really looking for is what is the most effective way uh, to ensure these animals are killed as humanely and as quickly as possible. Generally, that is by uh, you know a terminal injury to the spine. Um, generally, closer to uh, closer to the skull as as possible. Um, so you know we can we can hopefully have a, a quick good night for these animals. Um, mm-hmm. So you know the force that we're getting from from modern conibears, you know, makes that uh, conibear style traps makes that uh, you know very achievable. I'll I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. So those those traps, the body gripping traps, are like little squares. Yes. With with uh, like like little metal. It's a metal rod, and there's two squares back to back, and when it's fired these things close on top of the animal and the idea is that one of the metal bars of the square catches right on the back of the skull base of the neck and then the other is somewhere um in the torso area so it's like it's a double spine yeah you know, kind of killing. kind of i'm trying to figure out a way to describe this that people could picture it is it's it's you know those two squares kind of rotate around each other um like around yes. a central point across from each other if that makes sense um so that you know like you say you can get those two points of of impact um to uh to ideally ensure you know a quick dispatch for the animal so my in am i correct here in in one of the things that would be looked at in a trap design in in the testing is so the speed at which that thing closes is critical to the speed at which the animal is going into the trap. Yes, yeah, absolutely, because that that will help determine where those those kind of double suitcases where where they're going to impact on the animal. Um, so either is, either catching it on the head or the snout would be, you know, too too fast, um, or if the animal's getting too far into the trap because it's moving faster than the jaws can close or the arms can close, then it's catching it more abdominal, back hips, that sort of thing, which is not an, not an instant kill. So yeah, it's one of the things, one of the things I've been learning about trapping is the 
blows me away is, you know, you might think that these animals come along and, you know, they, they, they look in the trap, they see or they smell the bait in the back and then it's like a slow little movement like going in and things like Martin, like I'm being told when those things are like, no, there's something in there. It's like torpedo, boom, into the back of this little box because they want that that meat before somebody else steals it from them, a crow or whatever. And they are lightning fast. So these traps have got to be lightning fast plus in order to be catching them in that lethal area in the front of the body. So was, that blows me away. Yeah, and that's, you know, trying to, to describe it to people. Um, you know, I have, I have a lot, you know, I'm a hunter. I'm not a good one, but I am one. Um, and, you know, all, a lot of my hunting buddies that don't know a whole lot about trapping, um, and, and trying to explain to them, well, no, like these, these things need to be, you know, very, very quick because they're dealing with very, very quick animals. And it's like, when you're walking through the woods and there's something on the ground that scares the heck out of you because you didn't know it was there and it takes off out of under a pile of brush or something, Gross, somebody yeah. somewhere is trapping that animal. <laughs> That's, those are the kinds of animals that trappers are dealing with. <laughs> Um, gotcha. and that these traps need to be designed to deal with, uh, that so fast, yeah. anything that's, that's on the ground and gives you half a heart attack, uh, you know, with the exception of, of, uh, of a grouse that's taken off and blowing out right beside you and driving the heart rate up. Um, you know, somebody's trying to trap whatever, whatever mammal, whatever fur bearer just, uh, just gave you, uh, gave you a start. We need to build yeah. a trap that's fast enough to catch that animal. Huh. Yeah. That's, uh, so, so would that, that be, that would be some of the simulation runs I would have to assume is like that the simulations would run would be okay. The Martin is going in at speed X trap is closing at speed Y. Now the Martin is going in at speed X plus one and X plus two. And yeah, absolutely. So, so figuring okay. out, you know, if we're, if we're dealing with the fastest Martin alive, um, or with, with, if we're dealing with a Martin that maybe just woke up and is still, still knocking the cobwebs out, uh, had a rough night the night before, uh, and he's coming in a little bit slower, you know, we need to make sure that this trap is still able to, uh, able to dispatch both of those animals, ideally. Um, and, uh, and if it can't, then that may lead to a fail. Right. On the, on that design that's being tested. Yep. So like you were saying, a manufacturer of traps like Belisle or Conibear or Savignon or whatever, they would submit a trap for hopefully certification. It would be tested and then they would get results back to sort of yay or nay. And if it's a nay, maybe like where they can go back to the drawing board. and Yeah, absolutely. So we, we have, you know, long-term relationships with, uh, with these traps you know, manufacturers like say with, with Belle Isle and, and Sauvageau and others. So, um, you know, we, uh, you know, we have a relationship there where we can say, you know, come to us, we can test the traps. We can, you know, give you the, if, if you pass, you pass, if you fail, we can have a conversation about what it, how it is that you failed. Um, and we, you know, we test traps not only for, for manufacturers that are, uh, seeking certification in Canada, you know, we have uh, on occasion tested traps for other countries um, mm. for manufacturers that are operating either for manufacturers in those other countries or for, um, you know, 
the whether it's the the regulatory authority or, or trappers association or what have you for those countries in countries where there isn't necessarily enough trapping to justify having their own version of of fic uh so we've in the past we've worked with a number of particularly with uh with european countries to uh to run certification for run testing on on traps that they use uh in uh in their countries yeah so once once a manufacturer's trap it, it like passes meets meets the criteria um it would get like a certification label and 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 then that company would would they then have to submit that that trap design has been certified to the province and territories to get it added to the list of acceptable um traps for that species or is that done at a federal level and then and then just the provinces would would adopt whatever the certified traps are for the upcoming season so the the provinces and and territories refer to our list um gotcha there's 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 the one list that everybody refers back to um just that way we don't end up having to deal with you know this is every province province, but not this province for gotcha i mean not that there aren't implementation differences for for certain practices in uh in from province to province but uh in terms of the trap list it's just you know in in some of the regulations it's like refer to the fur institute of canada trap list gotcha gotcha okay no that's uh yeah that's uh that's that's interesting and and i think one of the parts i think that i find fascinating here is is you know i think there's a one there's a misconception when people thinking trapping they're thinking these these foothold traps with the jagged jaws on it right and you still google it and you see these pictures come up and some states still actually allow them but but it's like this is this is like as high tech as you can you can get with steel and scientific testing and modeling like Doug's Doug's talking about and and it's it's ongoing like there's a lot of manufacturers and a lot of different designs as a trapper there's a lot of certified traps that you could choose from for any given animal so that you can have little nuances a slightly different trigger design you know a little different shapes and and you know some trappers are more successful there's there's a lot of choices out there and trappers and the trapping manufacturers trap manufacturers always seem to be looking for how to improve these things that's one of the things i've seen in the trapping community is they're always talking about that next little modification or that next little gain or like little tiny things to make these things better and and it's not a static industry i think in canada no and that's you know one of the the things that led to to the the agreement international humane trapping standards to the eights agreement was those you know like i call them the looney tunes traps right because that's for me i'm (laughs) i'm 32 um you know my 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 knowledge of those traps doesn't come from having ever actually seen one in real life because they haven't been used here in decades right but it's you know the the big steel jawed jagged jaw traps um comes in an acme truck 
Yeah, exactly. You know, Wiley Coyote <laughs> sets it out for the Roadrunner. Damn um, you, Wiley Coyote. We uh, we don't certify traps for Roadrunners. I can I can tell you that much. Um, but uh, but that was one of the things that that the Eights Agreement was was brought in because of was because of European concerns around those traps. So right in the Eights Agreement, just says like, no, this is done. Um, the use of uh, of these kinds of traps of of the mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. The, the steel jaw um, leg hold traps. So, um, but like you say, there's there's an incredible amount of engineering that goes into to trap design. Um, it is a like it is a uh, a cutting edge industry of how can this be lighter? How can this be stronger? How can this be more effective? How can this be faster? How can this be um, you know, better than the last version. Um, you know, there's there's traps on our certified trap list that aren't manufactured anymore because the next version and the version after that and the version after that have been certified. Um, they're still there because if somebody still has them and is still using them, they still get the job done. But um, these trap designs, like you say, are being improved on. Um, you know, every micron, every uh, every tenth yeah. of a second, every uh, foot pound of force. Uh, you know, everybody wants a better trap. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody wants to make sure that they have a uh, a trap that provides for the the quickest and cleanest kill with the least fur damage, um, so that we end up with uh, with a great product uh, at the end of the day that also doesn't spook people away because it's this, uh, you know, scary giant steel jaw, uh, spiky, uh, thing that accidentally stepped in. Yeah, totally. Now there's an Canada has another category of certified traps that trappers can legally use on some species and they're the foot restraining traps. So, they're not what we're talking about, about the steel jaws that are closing or, you know, the, the steel teeth on them. Maybe describe like the modern, they, they call them the restraining traps now or the soft traps um, and, and kind of where, where we are with the state of technology with those. And Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, so like you say, modern, modern foothold traps or, or restraining traps, um, FIC does certify restraining traps and, and foothold, uh, leg hold traps, um, foothold traps. Um, you know, in modern designs, those have, um, you know, either, or I shouldn't say either, either and, you know, an offset between the jaws or a buffer between the jaws. You know, in some cases, that's like a rubber buffer um, so that, uh, you know, an animal gets in that trap can't go anywhere necessarily um but isn't going to to severely injure itself uh under under the under the eights agreement there's a list of particular injuries that if sustained while in a trap um would lead to a trap not being certified Um, okay yeah so like if the trap broke the skin um crushed tendons broke bones i think i remember reading some of those things it's yeah it's exactly. designed so, to hold it but not do any tissue damage 
while yeah, it's precisely. restraining the so animal. That if, okay. if an animal were to find its way into that trap that was not intended to be in that trap, um, that that animal could be released and uh, and be on its merry way. And, you know, I saw a video was going around recently of, I forget if it was a wolf in a coyote set or a coyote in a wolf set, um, and showing, you know, the trapper coming in and coming up to that animal that, I mean, he wasn't in a good mood. Um, he, <laughs> he, he had places to be and people to see. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he came up there, uh, you know, the trapper came up to this, to this animal, um, and released him from the trap and, and the animal took off in the woods and was fine. Um, yeah. you know, that's something that, uh, that trappers encounter on a regular basis, uh, is, uh, you know, we, we do everything we can to ensure as little, um, incidental catch as possible. And that's where the best trapping practices in particular come in very handy um is on on these restraining traps is to uh to ensure that the the traps are set in a way that when that animal is in uh is in the trap they're not close enough to a tree or a rock or something that they could that they could do damage to themselves um right because right. there's that's where the that's where the best practices comes in because so you could have this awesome trap but if a trapper puts it in a wrong place and an animal gets twisted on something and then he twists a paw or or, or something no I, I yeah i can see the relationship there now yeah so that's so, so like i say that's how uh how the best trapping practices can be useful to to a trapper is to uh to a new trapper let's say is is to show you know this is the trap that we say won't cause damage but if you put the trap that won't cause damage in in a place where the animal could easily injure itself it, there's nothing we can do in designing that trap that will um you know that will ever be able to make up for yeah, uh, yeah. you know putting it in the wrong place it's like the automobile safety standards this car was rated number one for front impact safety rating for passengers and you get t-boned by a train from the side well it doesn't do you any good yeah exactly that's uh that there, there's only so much we can do right it's, don't stop uh, on the railroad tracks folks yeah but uh but no that's that's the thing is that there's uh there's been hmm. a lot of evolution you know and and you know to raccoons i mean and, and the foot encapsulating traps that uh that now uh, that we've certified for for raccoons because raccoons react very badly in a traditional foothold set um so now there's they been... like to they like to spin like a yeah a they like to spin like a top and, and, and in a okay. in a traditional uh restraining trap that ends very poorly for the raccoon yeah um, so so there's been evolutions in design to now what we call the foot encapsulating traps where the foot kind of goes down into a cup um the cup or a cylinder and and goes deep enough that the raccoon can't pull it back out um so now it can't um uh, move around that trap in a way that it can hurt itself um you know that's a, a you know a more recent uh, innovation in in trap design. Hmm. Um, Interesting to uh, to help alleviate some of these concerns with with live capture traps. Yeah, you know I think the 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 idea of the foothold traps I think for the non trapping public it 
it probably doesn't sit well because we have hundreds of years of this imagery that we've been talking about. We've seen the pictures, we've seen the damage. Uh, gosh, they used to have these big clawed traps that were big enough for grizzly bears. And you can just, um, like 200 years ago, you can imagine what would have happened, you know, with those claws closing on, on that animal's leg, right? But so we've got the legacy of that that's like imprinted in people. And now we're talking about like the new generation of soft footholds that have been tested for, for, you know, tendon damage, tissue bru bruising. They've, for a particular animal, like a coyote, they're sized and they're, they're, they're set, you know, at a certain weight. So those jaws, the offsets, are that they're closing on an exact spot across the toes, not on the knuckles, not on the wrist, but like in the middle of the phalanges, you know, so that is the safest way to just grip, um, swivel. So if the animal does spin, it just turns, you know, with it, they can't, you know, damage themselves. I mean, these are, you know, very sophisticated foothold traps then the question comes then it's like why why is a trapper doing that that's not humane humane maybe i you know a person might be instantly dead martin sticks his head in a box and bang had no idea what happened just you know like like a deer they get shot in the head headshot right just instant instant death and and you, you touched on it and i think this was a really important point is those restraining traps give the trapper the opportunity to say this is not the animal that I'm going to take uh, it could be you know like we were talking about it could be a wolverine that's in a link set and where I live you're not allowed to trap wolverines anymore so it's like you don't want to kill it because you can't trap them because their their populations down so in this type of a situation, the animal isn't in a killing set that maybe is humane for a lynx, but you accidentally, a wolverine stuck his head in it. He's in a foothold. He's pissed off and really experienced trappers can get animals as big as a full-grown wolf out of a trap. I've heard that where my trapping instructor is like, he, me and my brother, we came back with a sheet of plywood and we laid it down on top of the wolf and and you know got it out or the conservation officers come and dart it a particular trapper may be trapping in an area knowing that i only want to take adult males i don't want subadults and i don't want females because i have a really good handle on my population on my trap line and i'm being very very careful from a sustainability and a population health and choosing individual animals that are not going to be detrimental to future population growth. So if it's a killing trap and you come back to it and it's like, it's a juvenile female bobcat and was instantly killed and you're like, ah, oh, versus it's in a soft foot restraining device and you know, you get your little shield and all that kind of stuff and you deal with some scratches mm -hmm. and pop, pop her foot out and, and, life's life's good her tendons haven't been damaged her toes haven't been broken so you know i think i think it's important to talk about that because these are the types of 
decisions that individual trappers make on their trap line based on their knowledge of their populations and you've given them the tools you know to 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 be able to do that yeah i mean i think that you know it's it's no secret that uh that trapping has has gotten a bad rap over the last few decades shall we say from uh from animal welfare and animal rights organizations and anti-trapping organizations anti-sustainable use organizations writ large um but trappers, I mean, uh, the, the trappers I know are not uh, interested in the indiscriminate killing of all wildlife on the landscape, right? Yeah. That is that is not what anybody has in mind uh, when it comes to uh, to trapping. You know, this isn't the this isn't the Hudson Bay Company going into the the Oregon Territory to uh, to create a fur desert to convince the Americans that they didn't want to come further west, right? You know, that's that's a long <laughs> time ago. Um, you know, there there is like you say the the attachment that that folks have to their to their trap lines and the the understanding they have of population dynamics and and uh, you know annual and multi-annual cycles of populations and you know the uh, the eyes on the landscape uh, and and memory on the landscape that that trappers have um, is is second to none. Um, you know, I I I challenge anybody out there to who who's out there in in the woods uh, on or around uh, a trap line to go you know toe to toe with that trapper on uh, on trap line trivia of you know what was what was the year where there were the most martins what were the year where uh, wh- right. which year was yeah. it where there was thirty five feet of snow um, what year what year was the fire which fire well if you have to ask which fire you you already know. <laughs> You know that's that's the thing is there's very few, um, very few commercial pursuits which take place primarily in undisturbed natural ecosystems and natural environments. And trapping is is one, if not the only one. Um, Interesting. That that relies on large undisturbed landscapes. Uh, and and I think that that's something that not enough people uh, out there, you know, not enough of of I hate to say the average person or regular people, because um, what what is a regular person? Um, but uh, <laughs> but you know the the uh, the number of people out there that don't understand, um, you know, the the incredible amount of knowledge that uh, that exists in in Candace Trappers. Uh, in terms of of the ecosystems that they inhabit, um, and the the respect that they have for those animals, and the respect that they have for that for that ecosystem, for that landscape, uh, like I say, yeah, is, uh, is, no, I, is just I, about I hear you. Yeah, absolutely. I I agree with that, and and I know it's frustrating for me. And it's frustrating for a lot of trappers when their conversations about ecosystem integrity and biodiversity conservation and conservation of fur bears is habitat. Like generally in Canada, trappers are saying they're logging too much. It's too much clear cutting. There's not enough old growth for uh, fur bears. You know, they, they, they logged and my Martin population's gone and um, they logged and all the cats moved out and all I have now are coyotes and, um, you know, they, they see those things. They're always talking at that level. 
But then the new story that they're having to fight against is, you know, everybody's upset because like a trapper got a wolf and posted a picture on social media and that's what everybody's locked onto. And the trappers are going like, oh my God, like, can you not, like they're logging this valley and this and that and, and like, we're talking populations of fisher. We're talking populations of snowshoe hares that sustain lynx populations. And I know, I know that's frustrating for, for this community. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you know, I spent, before I came to, to FIC, um, I spent five years working for a, uh, a large multinational environmental NGO, um, the one that Vince McMahon doesn't like very much because they stole his three letters. Um, you know, there there is an entire nomenclature, an entire language that um, environmental NGOs have have built up around conversations of of habitat uh, conservation, around landscapes and seascapes, around um, sustainability. And it's not that different from what you can hear from trappers and hunters and anglers and fish harvesters. Um, but we haven't been the ones setting the language. Um, so, you know, one of the things that, that uh, in, in my earliest days at FIC, you know, that I said to my board is I said, listen, I can, I, I understand the language that those people are using. And I understand the language that they are imprinting on to government. Um, I can take what we say and translate it into that language. Yeah. Uh, you know, these are, because like I say, the, the ideas aren't that far off. Um, and the the concern for landscapes and seascapes is, is not that far off. But if we're speaking a different language than they are, it becomes very easy for there to be... Um, for there to be confusion and disagreement. Um, so yeah, being exactly. able to speak that language, um, you know, and, and speak the, the regulatory and legislative language of government and, and all of these things are the kinds of, of uh, service that the FIC needs to be able to provide to trappers from, from coast to coast to coast and from to sealers on all three coasts is yeah. to say, yeah come to us with the problems that you're dealing with. If you're having trouble communicating with your provincial or territorial government, or you're having trouble dealing with Ottawa, or um, you've got all these angos popping up and they're, they're saying all kinds of crazy stuff about the, uh, the, the, the places where you live and where you trap, um, you know, come to us, come to FIC and we can, I'm not going to say we can solve your problem, but we can try and help. Um, well, I think you bring, you know, even just strictly on the topic that we're talking about here is, is humane trapping and humane, humane traps and humane trapping standards. Trappers are up against a tremendous amount of visual imagery that's put out there of animal suffering in traps. Like, yeah. so, you know, we... I've dug into some of the stories and, you know, found out that it was like homeowners that were trying to catch a coyote and someone's dog got killed in it. That was in Manitoba two winters yeah, ago. So and you're somebody like, got a trap off their cousin or their neighbor. Yeah. They didn't know what they were doing and bad stuff happens. Or, or I mean, there so, was one just last, was it last week or earlier this week in PEI um, 
you know, it was an illegal trap. Somebody's yeah. somebody's dog got in a trap, but it was an illegal trap. You know, yeah. no ifs, ands, or buts. And, it shouldn't have been there. And, you know, and then there's, there's pictures out there of things that go wrong. And, and, and I, th- I think we have to be like completely honest is we've got world-class traps, world-class technology, science behind the testing, um, all the will and the motivation of everybody is for the most humane trap of the, of the animal. If your goal is, is to kill it or, or, or not injure it in the case of what we were talking about earlier. Um, but occasionally all of that is foiled by a critter that's trying to stay alive, that's coming in at an angle that nobody anticipated in a certain, like whatever, every once in a while there is a bad catch and it's not the nicest thing for the animal before the trapper gets there and usually uses a, um, you know, a firearm to, to dispatch the animal. So when those types of, of, images get out there like they're they're hard to overcome that because that one little thing kind of seems to blow all the credibility of everything we've been talking about that canada has been doing for decades and in trap standards and testing and best practices people are like oh no that that's all a bunch of bs because look at this picture as opposed to so 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 what i'm hearing you say is like there's some truth to be interjected into that particular scenario where you can help and say like, Hey, we've had a look at the picture. That is not a certified trap here in Canada. Like a question whether or not that picture is even from Canada. Um, that is not a certified trap that a Canadian commercial trapper would use. It could be an unauthorized homeowner. Like, like there's all types of things or, you know, you would bring some truth about, you know, how the trap works and, and, and help support some of those, those yeah, issues. And, and, and we dealt with that. Earlier today, uh, actually, oh, wow. there there was a, a, a story uh, in in a media outlet, um, and it uh, it said you know this kind of, it was I think someone's dog got caught again in in a trap and it was a um, you know the story was like well this trap might have been for a lynx it might have been for a wolf um, and we're reading the story and we go well. There is no, there's no kind, there's no trap of that kind certified for wolf. So it must gotcha. be a lynx trap. So that's, that's the kind of thing where even just going back to those outlets and saying, don't speculate on what it might have been. Mm-hmm. If you know what it was, like if you know what kind of trap it was, reach out to the FIC. We are, we are the national scale experts on these things. We can tell you that is or isn't on the certified trap list for these species. Um, so, you know, if it, if it was set legally by, you know, uh, uh, you know, a licensed trapper in an area where they were able to set it and they were acting entirely within the bounds of the law, it was for species X, not species Y. Uh, right. Right. Just be, you know, that ensuring precision, uh, in the, in the news, frankly, um, of, and it's not, I don't think, most of the time, I don't think it's brought from a place of malice or a place of, like, let's just make the trappers look bad. It's brought from a place of, you know, this is a reporter. They may have never met a trapper in their life. They may, they probably couldn't pick out a trap out of a lineup. Um, 
you know, they, you put up a, 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 an assortment of household items and a 330 bear in the middle, they may not be able to pick out which one is is, is the bear, right? Um, that's not... Um... It's, for, it's for flipping toast really fast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you know that's that's the kind of stuff where um, you know having a national organization like the FIC, uh, those are the kinds of things that we need to be doing to ensure that um, you know there isn't a uh, there isn't more fodder out there for there are people out there who want to make sure there is no more trapping. Period. Yeah. Yep. Right. Like I, you know, not not to spend. Uh, spend a whole lot of time talking about the antis but like there there will always be people out there who will seize on every opportunity to make our industry our craft uh our trade look bad yeah so if at the very least we can ensure that we don't look bad when we shouldn't you know like you say we will never be perfect i i don't think that we will ever uh get a trap uh come into vagerville that has like a uh, you know, a laser beam that like shoots the Martin right in the right in through the ear, and that you know the the uh, there's no way for it. You know, it's got like a, a GPS array and 68 cameras and costs. Hey, don't don't dollars. don't 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 discount those things when you're retiring <laughs> and there's like some kid taking over your job. They're looking. Oh my God, you guys were just you were you know. So what we got is we got these uh, computerized traps. They got facial recognition. You just program, and it's like the trap won't fire if it's a if it's a female Martin. It'll only fire if it's a male Martin. And Mi the scanners yeah. can tell you what the fur quality is. Mini mini Death Star for Martins. Yeah, exactly. yeah. If, yeah. I mean, if Elon Musk wants to send one of those over to Mag <laughs> to Vagerville. You know, we can we can run it through the simulation and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you dream it, we we can build it. Uh, so, um, yeah. So that I mean, that's important. Uh, truth, truth in the news. Um, you know, and and I think you know, kind of where I was going with that is, you know, like yes, yeah, sometimes you see a picture of a tr of a trap that didn't work properly. Um, it wasn't humane for the animal. But yet, you, you know, you have to understand that if that is a certified trap, it was a rare situation because what you were saying earlier, if a company brings you a trap, you test it, um, even if it does pass and it goes out into the field and the trappers and the regulatory agencies are giving you all this feedback going, we're not happy with this thing because it's not doing its job good enough, then if that's not fixed then it doesn't become a certified trap that, that's out there. And so you don't have traps with a poor track record um, that that's not humanely killing animals and, and people are finding this, this all over the place. You know, it's just with the best rated vehicle for crash protection uh, of its occupants that won all the awards, some people are still killed in automobile accidents in the safest cars in, in you know in the world so occasionally something will go wrong but uh, you know i would say it's incumbent upon you if you want to formulate an opinion or a media outlet to come to experts like you at the FIC and 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 say what is the track record of this of this trap is this common is this a rare event if it was rare what was done wrong why did, why didn't this 
work out those sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we set a, a very high bar, um, but that bar isn't a hundred percent success, right? Is, is, Man. you know, we, we can never be perfect. Um, can't all... even in hunting, we can't, right? Like no, it's... that's it. Right. Is, I mean, there's, you know, no matter how much, uh, time, talent and treasure goes into, uh, design of firearms, um, there's still going to be gut shot deer, right. Mm -hmm. Is, 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 uh, is a reality of the situation and we can't pretend that there isn't, but gotcha. we have a, we have a, a, a very strong track record and decades of experience and expertise, uh, where we can say, well, this is why that happened. And this gotcha. is why we aren't perfect. But here's all the things we've done to try and bring us as close to perfect as we can. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, it's not that I can quote a study from this, but I bet you there's more animals that are hit by motor vehicles on highways in Canada that are not killed instantly than animals in certified traps on trappers trap lines that is not the absolute perfect killing catch i i would hazard a guess or talking dozens of animals versus tens of thousands of animals you know that that you know get broken legs and hit and hit in the hips and you know those sorts of things by vehicles so uh in the grand scheme of things i would i would probably say the humaneness of you know the numbers on the trapping side of things is probably pretty pretty darn good Yep. Mm -hmm. um, so just want to shift gears a little bit to a topic that's also like a little bit controversial out there is the use of snares in, in trapping. So a criticism that's always been levied against Canada and it's, it's, and the international agreement is the agreement was silent on snares. So trappers can use them and folks are saying that is not a humane method of killing animals. You were mentioning earlier, and I have some hanging on the wall over there for this winter, some amazing technology is, is improving the efficiency of a neck snare um, at dispatching an animal very quickly in the use of power springs right up to the great big power rams. Um, the big steel springs that a snare is attached to that that fires. So tell us where snares fit into the certification system of a trapping method in Canada. Sure. So I I, I will I will say you've you've fallen into the trap of a a very pun not intended um, <laughs> of of something that's that's commonly repeated but is not true is snares are in the agreement. Um, oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. So snares are in Article Seven go. of the of the Agreement on International Humane Trapping Standards, but the the exact okay. verbiage in the in the article is that killing neck snares must comply with designs approved by the relevant competent authority. So they are in the agreement, but they're not subject to as many. Uh, as many limitations and restrictions as other kinds of, of, of killing traps. So, um, you know, in understanding that, that there is a, a need to address killing neck snares, 
um, within the uh, within the language of the agreement. Uh, FIC has been working over the last six or seven years uh, on on killing externs for coyotes, uh, on looking at you know what are the protocols and and design configuration designs and configurations and or you know best trapping practices that need to be employed with uh with killing killing extraneous for coyote so you know we've done a number of years of um of field captures and necropsies of coyotes that were were caught in uh, in killing neck snares with different configurations of neck snares and mm -hmm. uh, comparing the uh, the effectiveness of different designs and different configurations. Um, so that took place over over the last four years. Uh, we also did some mechanical evaluations. Um, like like with uh, like I explained earlier with uh, with the other killing traps, uh, we've uh, you know done the the measurements of you know breaking strength and and uh, and, and things like that for uh, for different uh, components and different designs of uh, of snares. So we have uh, a much better uh, how can I say it a much better understanding now of killing x snares on coyotes uh than we did before 2015. um oh, well, okay so you know there uh there are some some conversations that it continue to go with uh with the provinces and territories about how um they intend to implement um kind of the the best uh best practices on on snares on on killing x snares for coyotes um, but, uh, we do think that with the, the kind of quote, best design, um, that we've found, uh, through this research, uh, in accordance with, with, with the eights, um, will, uh, will not only increase effectiveness of, of, uh, killing neck snares on coyotes, uh, but also potentially cut down on some of the, uh, unintended incidental catch uh particularly like uh a lot of a lot of the concern around snares is uh incidental catch of ungulates right of, of elk yeah. and, moose and deer getting caught in snares so uh we're we're pretty confident anyway that uh that with the uh the best design configuration which isn't on the website yet but in the near future we're hoping to to have it out there um that uh that that'll be something that uh folks will be um you know happy to see so is the is the is this leading to is the certification of a handful of manufacturers snares uh and, and setups like would would they be certified like a trap and if you're trapping coyotes in bc saskatchewan and alberta it has to be a minimum cable size and this spring and this trigger and yeah so it'll breakaways. be you know like like you say i mean a lot of of snares are are manufactured by the trapper themselves right is that uh that's where we get into and i think that's that's honestly why the the eights uh treats snares so much differently than it treats 
other kinds of traps, right? So, uh, so in our um, our best design will very much be a design um, of you know he, these are the components, and these components would need to be you know up to a certain spec. Um, more so than like this is the snare, and if you purchase this oh, okay. snare, okay, it yeah, will be, uh, it uh, it is certified, like with uh, like with any kind of other killing trap that's certified. Right, right, okay, yeah. So, so what I would envision would be is you know you know a regulation would read you know uh, an approved method of using a snare on a coyote. It would be these it's it would have to have these certain elements yeah precisely. you know like a like a power spring uh when fully extended at its maximum width would be four inches or something like like that right then as a trapper if i'm building these things uh then i would be buying ones from maybe different manufacturers putting my snares together but i would have to buy a spring that you know, as a magnum spring or whatever. And, and if I was out using one that was a smaller spring and conservation officers came and inspected my line, they'd be like, take out the measuring tape and be like, this is an illegal snare. Uh, and yeah, precisely. So it'd be much more about, um, you know, the, the identification of, of spec of different components of that. Snare. Okay. Um, gotcha. You know, versus like you say, like, you know, for, for, a uh, certified trap you know where you can walk into your your trapping supply store and pick one up off the shelf um this would be much more and it's stamped right on it it'll be like a like a belial one two three four and you go to the your list and it's like that one is certified for martin and fisher yeah exactly so so with this uh with with coyote killing next snares um you know i think that as what we've been able to put together gets more out there, I think that there will be um, a lot of interest from from coyote trappers uh, in the effectiveness of it. Um, I think this will be a you know something that uh, that hopefully will be much more voluntary in uh, in adoption uh, versus the the provinces and territories. You know all of a sudden one day being like, no, you can only use, um, this kind of snare. Um, I think that the provinces and territories will probably more so be running to catch up with, um, what, uh, what the trappers are, are out there using, uh, based on, gotcha. on our best design. Yeah. No, oh, that's, that's, that's cool. Uh, then obviously logically this will hopefully progress to wolves, uh, at some point obviously dealing with an animal of order magnitude bigger more powerful than than a coyote so that's going to change you know the the components and stuff there as well yeah and we we're we're currently undertaking some work uh in that regard and have for for a couple of years now we're we're not at the end of the road yet but uh but also looking at effectiveness of uh, killing next snares on on wolves. yeah no, I'm I'm really looking forward to seeing some reports come out, uh, especially where the experts have, you know, have documented, you know, the 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 humane way, the speed and and the method of which the neck snares are killing animals. 
because uh, you talk to trappers and, you know, they said when you're using the right equipment and they're set right, um, they are incredibly fast. And the, the best way that it's been explained to me is if you watch any of those, um, you know, like wrestling things or self-defense or even the, you know, the things that happen where um, somebody videotapes police officers, you know, restraining somebody, whatever, and they use the chokehold and they cut off the carotid artery and veins to the brain, like a, a person literally blacks out within seconds of those being pinched, right? So that's what the next snare is doing. And, and you know, I people telling me that they think that that blackout in the animal is, is, is a matter of seconds as well. And then of course it's not released. And then that's the oxygen's cut off to the brain and then, and then the animal dies, but the animal is unconscious when it, when it, when it succumbs. And, and everything that's been explained to me is like, this is an incredibly lethal and humane way when done right. Yeah. And, and, you know, our, uh, our trap testing work when it's, uh, you know, when it's involving actual live soon to be dead animals, um, you know, like uh, like these these killing neck snare studies have have relied very heavily on on field capture and and necropsies of uh, of captured animals, and you know we we do that you know with with trappers and with veterinarians um, who uh, who do our, our necropsies and, and and things like that, and they they've said from uh, from the field captures much like you say that you know when when properly set. Uh, and again, you know, this is, will be something where the, the best trapping practices for, for snares will be very important. But, um, you know, with, with the right gear and the right setup, it is a matter of seconds. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. it's not minutes. It's not hours. It's, it's seconds. Yeah. 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 That's, yeah, that's, that's my, my understanding it as well. And the, maybe explain a little bit when you were talking uh, when we first started talking about the snares about, so, so folks, you know, you think about like a snare, it's, it's a wire loop, it's anchored to a tree, it's set on, let's just say some kind of a trail or, or, you know, a cubby where an animal wants to stick his head in because it smells some lure or, or a scent and you're directing them, whether they're walking or sticking their head into something to have a look, they're, you're directing their head through that snare um, it pulls off of the the wire hanger, closes. They either move forward or they try to pull back. The trigger fires and closes that uh, around their neck. So now you talked about incidental catch of ungulates. So now think about that being set on a on a trail that coyotes are frequenting, and a white-tailed deer comes along and it happens to duck its head or it puts its leg into this thing and does exactly the same thing well now you know you you've caught a deer in this snare and what what happens what what are what are trappers using to to prevent that so so uh, you know the most important part in in preventing that is is properly setting your snare in a location that um you know ideally will not have uh, an ungulate encounter it um, you know, that, that won't always be possible, but, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, a an ounce of prevention is worth a, a pound of cure. 
uh, situation. Um, the uh, the other thing is that you know with with design of snares by times, um, you know these uh, they can be designed in a way to ensure that uh, they're not going you know the snare is not going to close so small as to um, you know hold on to a deer's leg right you know that right that, that right there will come a point you know the 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 difference between a, a coyote's neck and a deer's leg there's a whole lot of of margin there mm. um so ensuring that the design you know if and when possible um you know prevents uh prevents from getting to the point of that animal actually getting caught um you know completely caught and locked in that snare um you know that goes uh that goes a long way too yeah and there's also the um the the breakaway devices as yeah, well absolutely so that, that the 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 most important part um is uh you know these uh these snare designs also will incorporate a breakaway a breakaway device so for you know if you're catching you know a a moose an elk uh black bear in a in a coyote set um that uh, that with enough sustained force by uh, by these animals that they'd be able to just purely break through um, you know a, a failsafe portion of of the device um, yeah you know because the the amount of uh, amount of force uh, that can be exerted by you know a bull moose versus a coyote um, are are two very different things so that's one thing that we've been doing some testing on in Vagerville. Um, is the breakaway devices and you know at what point are these breakaway devices failing gotcha i mean failing yeah, they're, they're built to fail right at what point are they doing the, are yeah they they're kind of right <laughs> if if folks think about them they're like a little wire uh like an s hook and and you, and you join your cables and you crimp this thing together it looks like a little figure eight i i kind of liken them to those little hooks that are on the end of a bungee cord like shaped like an s so if you pull on the two ends that are attached to it with a certain amount of force, nothing happens. But if you're much stronger, you can pull and straighten that little wire hook out. And then the whole snare just kind of falls off on the ground and the deer, or the elk or the moose just, just walks, walks away. And I was to understand before that these breakaway devices were available to me as a trapper to buy by bulk. I can make my own snares. But if it said this, this one here that I'm buying is capable of breaking at 285 pounds of force, which would be fine for a white-tailed deer, there's, there was nothing behind that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there was the, the word of, of the manufacturer. Um, yes was was really all you had to to rely on and and you know they uh they aren't uh you know in some cases able to run the 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 same kinds of mechanical testing that that we're able to do at vagerville mm -hmm, uh, so mm -hmm. that was a, a big part of um of the the killing next snare study was purely that that breakaway device and testing those breakaway devices and saying okay do these actually release at x pounds um you know and if they do okay great 
maybe they're failing at much less than that, in which case we might be dealing with like a, you know, losing coyotes or losing wolves situation, uh, losing your target. Or are these things holding on more than, than anyone thought they could? Um, you know, that's, uh, that's really the, uh, really the key question in that, uh, in that question about incidental, incidental catch. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, what you said at the start here, uh, really get, again, brings back this, uh, this theme of best practices and then the actual technology itself, the trapper, the snare, you know, the trapper that showed me how to set snares and how to avoid it's mostly white-tailed deer uh kind of kind of where where i am on on his line is a coyote will duck under something and you'll direct them through a snare if you put like a pole or a tree across the trail but the deer won't duck under it if it's set up a certain way the deer will either go over or around it so it was like this best practice that was coupled on top of this snare even if it had the breakaway device on it if it caught the deer he'd 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 bend it out you're still doing things knowing the animals that are moving through there to go a deer is not going to go underneath of this or most likely not going to go underneath of this i'm going to put it here move this and the deer will go around there's a chance the coyote could go around too but oh well um, it's that's better than catching a deer so yeah well that's uh, if if coyote goes around your trap your trap may or your snare your snare may still get the next coyote uh mm-hmm. if a deer goes through your snare um it's not catching the coyote it comes after uh, <laughs> yeah that's yeah that's true that's true so you know one i guess one last kind of thought that i have here in this this whole discussion and what we've learned from you is again i'm still trying to think of people that are listening and you know just not liking the idea of trapping um you know and killing the animals for for fur you know we could get into a whole conversation about fur as a as as a um as a, as a fabric and sustainability versus you know the the synthetics and all that sort of stuff it's a whole nother whole nother um show but if you think about what FIC does and the testing of traps and what you went back to at the beginning that you're also looking at traps that are certified for animal control and research and relocation projects for conservation. That technology, I would have to suspect, would never reach that level of sophistication and humaneness of trapping if it weren't being driven by the commercial trapping fur industry. Otherwise, we would have no manufacturers in this country making traps and probably not a facility that would be testing them. It's like, would would you say that that's like the base is the commercial fur market that's generating all this tech that things like research, like... um, the humane trapping of problem coyotes in Stanley Park so they can be moved out to the wilderness. All of that is benefited from the fact that there's a trapping industry that's driving these, these more humane traps. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, at, uh, for, for as much as I say, we can't forget about the other parts of, of trapping. 
the backbone of of trapping in Canada is trapping for commercial fur purposes. Um, and you know, commercial can mean a lot of things, right? You know, commercial is furs that are going to the auction house to go to China or go to the big fashion houses in Europe. That can be trapping that goes to a local tannery and ends up in taxidermy. That can be trapping that ends up um, going to to indigenous artists in in remote communities. Um, so you know, commercial isn't just like the big industry here. Um, you know the big European fashion industry. Like this is this is more than than that. Um, but you know, w there's no country in the world that has large um, mammal populations that has no trapping. They may not have mm. commercial trapping. They may not have trapping done by um, the, uh, the the average citizen. Uh, but they have government trappers. Right, you know, we we've certified traps in countries where there is no legal trapping, except for, or we've tested traps for countries where you can't go get a trapping license. You can go work for the government and be a trapper, um, for for whether it's for disease control or for, um, you know, infrastructure damage control or human wildlife conflict uh, in communities. Um, there's still trapping there. There's just not many trappers. Uh, so, gotcha. you know, we have the, the benefit of having a commercial activity that, um, supports this industry and this practice and everything that comes along with it. Like you say, it supports the, uh, the trap testing. It supports, uh, the development of traps that are used in, wildlife research and in, in, uh, human wildlife, uh, conflict in, in Stanley park and in Burlington. Um, you know, all of that is, is, uh, is bonus is, is, uh, you know, benefit above and beyond. Uh, but without trappers associations, without the fur auctions, without, um, the industry that has built up around fur in Canada for centuries, um, you know, these, you know, researchers would not have access to the kinds of traps that they have access to today. Um, you know, people working for the Parks Department in Vancouver would not have access to the kinds of traps that they have today, or at the very least would not have access to the, uh, the confidence that they're able to have because those traps have gone through Vagerville. Uh, and we have a, a very significant understanding of those traps that uh, that they may not otherwise have. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and, and I think that was just an important point that I wanted, you know, people to think about is this relationship between, you know, the, the, the fur trappers and conservation trapping and coexistence trapping. I think that's, a, you know, a big word of, you know, I just think about like, you know, the problem bear or whatever that's, you know, conservation officers end up, you know, catching and moving because uh, it was caught in a, in a in a foot snare. Well, that's a foot snare that would have been designed, tested, you know, for, for um, you know, commercial trapping, you know, whatever. Other than we can't use commercial traps for bears, but like the technology's there for um, other animals. So there's a benefit to, you know, trapping a bear that needs to be, moved that people don't want to see destroyed so like there's just 
all the, all of these areas of our society are connecting together and and I just want people to kind of see where those relationships are what FIC does and and kind of where you know where folks should embrace this stuff within their own values of what they care about for wildlife whether you know it is coexistence and you're against trapping or if you are a trapper and you want the best technology possible to dispatch your animals um I think all of those values and interests and beliefs all overlay on top of what the Fur Institute does in testing traps scientifically and certifying the best humane trap. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's that's really the 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 take home that that I try and leave people with whenever I can is that you know the FIC has you know grown out from the trap testing mandate you know we 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 had just trap testing and certification and we've grown out to conservation of fur bearers and we grew out to promotion of of canada's fur industry and we've grown out to sealing and we've grown out to um you know promoting artisan indigenous artisans and and promoting the the fur industry writ large um but at its core we're here for traps all of the other stuff is great all the other stuff is bonus um but we do those other things because they reinforce our core mandate which is to ensure that trappers in canada uh have confidence in in their traps and as a result the consumers on the other end um can have confidence in that for product that they choose to wear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Curtis, any, uh, any kind of thoughts about what you've been hearing here? So I, I, I didn't know what to expect when you hear about this trap testing facility. So before I had this image of, a bunch of mad trapper looking guys sitting around throwing <laughs> weasels and stuff into traps and have a, have a loose sort of loose leaf paper writing stuff down. But now I can, I can Hey Jerry, write that down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, no, it's, it's cool. It seems very, uh, I knew it. There was probably some sort of computer or algorithm model that you would do, but uh but it, it definitely sounds very, well, you said you can run like 10,000 scenarios or something like that, which is pretty cool to, to get all that data. But it's very cool. But I also like the idea of the mad trapper sitting around. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's actually, that's, that, there's a lot of truth to that. At one point. There's hundreds of years of trapping is how, we, you got to a level of a trap that then got tweaked to a slightly higher standard that you're testing and certifying. And, and I would have to assume somewhere way back there, that was because trappers were putting these things in vices and, and, and crowbars and just bending them a little bit and getting a little bit more here and backing a little bit off there. And, and, um, you know, and then throwing a weasel at it and seeing <laughs> seeing what happens, right? Um, probably a dead weasel, but like, I yeah, I think that's it's a cool part of trapping is there's just been 
a whole lot of, I think, grassroots and ingenuity and, and stuff has got to these, these high tech traps. Like, I think it's a bottom up approach. Yeah. Well, I think that's the, uh, you know, um, you know, the, the, the quote about standing on the shoulders of giants, right. That, uh, mm. you know, we didn't, uh, start from zero in 1983. Uh, you know, we, we brought to what we were doing in 1983, um, the collective knowledge of all the trappers who came before, um, you know, that's, that's one of the really, you know, innovative things about FIC is that we are, you know, we have trappers associations, we have governments, we have indigenous organizations, we have the commercial side of the trade all represented within this one organization. Um, but, you know, going back to, to 83 and uh, like you say, we weren't starting with, okay, how is it we're going to kill a lynx? We already knew how to kill lynx. We already, we already knew, you know, we already yeah. knew there were already traps out there. Um, but, uh, you know, the the amount of, of knowledge that can be created, particularly taking that step into the, the computer simulation world, um, you know, we, we could run enough simulations to equal, you know, every, uh, every single instance of trapping a lynx in Canadian history. Right. Like we could we could we could make an estimate of like, OK, how many links have ever been trapped in Canada ever and say, yeah. OK, we're going to run that many simulations plus one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just reached over to my bookshelf while you were saying that and I, I grabbed this book. It'll it'll be backwards on on the on the computer screen or the, the camera for you to read it. But it's called the book's called Snares, Deadfalls and Other Traps of the Northern Algonquins and Athabascans, written by John M. Cooper, who was an American anthropologist studying traps and deadfall designs in the 1930s in, in Eastern Canada among indigenous people. And, I mean, you want to go back and talk about, you know, trapping technology and its origins and stuff and, you know, snares. I mean, they, they're they're not a Western idea. I mean, they're in here snaring uh, whiskey jacks and blue jays and caribou. Like they were, they used snares for those animals. Uh, grouse and ptarmigan, you know, were snared. There were technologies for that. Um, so, yeah, these these ideas uh, that you know you're testing and certifying now. Some of the premises behind them go back even even farther. Yeah, I, I can only imagine trying to set a snare for a whiskey jack. That'd be awful fiddly. <laughs> oh, it was. Uh, <laughs> it, yeah, it's like it's this cool thing. It's like you you make a fake branch, and in a little, it's like a little lever, and it goes in a little carved out slot, and then there's a little snare comes out with a, a loop, and I I had trouble visualizing it when I was reading it but basically like the bird lands on the branch and then but it, it bends a little bit and then that bending allows the noose to like loop onto its foot and so when the bird takes off and then it cinches tight on the bird's foot and then they catch the wow. the, the whiskey jacks because it was like they were food and they were yeah little sandwiches flying around in the, in the, in the forest. And so, so it was like, yeah, it, you know, the, 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 the basis of, of the technology, like I said, goes way back. The, the, 
my last thought here on on trap testing facilities. So so the institute's trap testing facility is in northern Alberta. However, the most complicated and largest and sophisticated trap facility in Alberta is the IKEA store in Calgary. <laughs> because I went in it once and it was not humane. <laughs> And I couldn't find my way out of that freaking store. <laughs> the uh, the official position of the FIC is that the IKEA in Calgary is not a certified. Uh, yeah, because that's not humane. Like I would have just gone running around and around. I'm going. I'm pretty sure I've walked by this bedroom set. Man, I'm sure hungry. I'm getting dizzy. I don't feel very good. I need some water. Just like that. Uh, just, just don't sit on that branch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at one point I was just like, kill me, get me out of the kitchenware section. Like it's, oh man. You're there setting snares in the corner to try and catch a mouse. Be like, I'm getting off. Yeah. So I here. can, I can stay alive. So I keep that's saying first there's a cafeteria, and, but I can't find it. <laughs> first and last time. <laughs> oh man, Doug, this is a really great conversation. I, um, I'm really glad you, uh, you were able to take the time. Uh, it's late. Uh, for you and join us on on the podcast and and talk about Canada's traps and trap standards and the role of the Fur Institute of Canada and in uh, contributing to a global industry and the humane standards that trappers in this country and other countries are, are using and um, thanks for the work you do and and thanks for coming on the show and and uh, hopefully folks learned a little bit more about you know, how much, how much goes, goes into trapping in this country and, and the dedication to doing it as humane, humanely as possible. So thanks, mm -hmm. man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me guys. It was uh, great to, uh, to talk a little bit, a uh, little bit about what FIC does. And uh, like you say, we, we, we could have a whole nother conversation about the sustainability of fur and why fur is uh, a great oh, thing. Absolutely. And so more than happy to come uh, I, back I think and so. uh, have that conversation someday. Oh, I've, I've, I think I've said Curtis on other podcasts. I mean, this is Canada. I would thoroughly love to see a day where all the kids standing down at the stop sign in the morning, wherever, whatever province you live in, waiting for the school bus are wearing fur hats rather than fleece ones. Mm -hmm. I'm just like, to me, that's, it, that's sustainable. It's, um, yeah, it's just natural. It's, it's Canada. And it's like, it's, it's a fabric that we have that we can manufacture, as a renewable resource and keep ourselves warm. So I'd love, I'd love to see that one day. Yeah. Absolutely. Hopefully someday soon. Cool. Well, thanks for your time and um, take it away, Curtis. Cool. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by the community minded Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Like I said, I gave you listeners a little bit of homework. Go check out their website, go check out their YouTube page see what kind of content they got streaming on there. Uh, also, you've heard us talk about it a lot before. I'm going to talk about it again. Our patron page, patron.com slash the hunter conservationist. We have more podcasts on there. We have, did you just add the round Canada to patron? Um, nope. Just uh, letting patrons oh, okay. know about the new I'm episode just, that was on there. and Scrolling down, I thought so. Uh, but you do have a new podcast coming out soon. 
coming out for patrons. Yes, yeah. the Hunting Diary podcast will be coming to the, the, the patron community shortly. So there will be two exclusive podcasts on there. We have the Hunters Underground right now, and the Hunting Diary podcast will be available soon. So keep an eye open for that. And thanks to all the folks out there who are patron subscribers. We appreciate you. Awesome. Doug, thanks again for joining us. Uh, look forward to catching up with you on um, trap design to keep grizzly bears out of Martin traps. Yeah, hopefully uh, hopefully someday soon. I've got a, uh, actually I've got one and a cable set up over on my workbench there. I just have to go um, put the cable around the tree, uh, put my hand in the trap and see if I can compress the springs and pull my hand out. So Dr. Right. Lamb thinks I should use a roll of newspaper, um, but uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm willing to stick my hand in for science. So there's uh there's some more content for your for your patrons there yeah well, we'll, we'll <laughs> live video of that uh of that yeah <laughs> yeah what's what are those guys jackasses hey put your hand in the trap and then see if you can pull it out they're, they're they, they make more than we do so um I'm, i'll give it a try all right everybody we will see you in the next episode 